In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Uh, It is so good to be with you. It's just so good to be home. Uh, The Revised Standard Version of the Bible that we use here at the Advent uh, every Sunday is uh, usually a, a very good, very faithful translation, but as we approach our passage from 1 Corinthians, uh, you should know that it is pitifully shallow uh, in, this, in this particular passage today. It reads, uh, the body is not meant for immorality, or it also reads, shun immorality, and it makes it sound like Paul is vaguely addressing all immorality, and we should shun all immorality, but Paul is not here being vague. The Greek word here translated as immorality is porneia. It's obviously the word that we get uh, from which we get pornography. And Paul is talking about sexual immorality. And the word shun is also too soft, as if we are uh, merely to give sexual immorality the cold shoulder. Uh, the word is flee, run. Save yourself. Flee sexual immorality. So how do we preach that as a word of grace? Now these Christians to whom Paul is writing live in the very densely populated wealthy seaport city of Corinth. It was known widely for licentiousness, and rampant sex in every expression imaginable. In fact, in the broader Greek culture, the phrase used to describe someone who was living a life of debauchery was that they were living like a Corinthian. It was a fun place. (laughs) It was Las Vegas by the sea. And Paul knew that if the gospel could take root there, then it could take root anywhere. And it did take root there. As uh, Paul uh, stayed there uh, about 18 months, we read in the book of Acts, uh, the Gospel did take root there. And Christian community began to emerge as many people came to faith in Christ. And yet, here we are several years later, Paul has heard that for many within the Corinthian church, the old brashness has come back in. Uh, The old vices the old self-centered appetites, but this time they're actually using Paul's teaching to justify their behavior. They know that they're saved by grace apart from works, such that the law does not apply to them any longer for their salvation, and therefore they presume all things are lawful for me. So it brings us to a classic question of law and gospel. Namely, If we are saved by grace apart from works, then does it matter what our works, our decisions, our moral lives, does it matter what all that looks like? That is, if God loves us in Christ apart from what we do, then how does that impact what we do? This question confronted the Corinthian Christians, and it confronts us now, if we plunge ourselves headlong into the wonders of God's amazing love for sinners, 
His extravagant, prodigal, you might even say promiscuous grace do we come out on the other side with a viable morality? Well, the Bible teaches us that the essence of sin is that we try to replace God as our own ultimate authority. It's my claim on my right to myself. As the great poet sang, it's my prerogative. I can do what I want to do. It's my prerogative. And, um... <laughs> but you know, that's Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's Pharaoh and, uh, but defying Moses. That's David with Bathsheba. It's Israel all throughout the centuries. And I can tell you this, it is me. My pride doesn't usually form an articulated thought that I am a God unto myself, but what else could there be underneath the anger or the hurt when my will is crossed? Or when my insecurities are challenged? Or when I don't get my way? What else could be beneath my claim on my money? Or my time? Or my expectations other than my right to myself? And who is God to impede that right? You know, there are also, there's ample biblical evidence that the claims that we make for ourselves actually have a claim on us. That we're not nearly so free as we think that we are. Last year, one of our Lenten preachers, Dr. Justin Terry from Trinity Seminary in this pulpit, uh, told the story of a young lady who had just graduated from college. She headed off to Europe to do her own thing. Uh, perhaps things that she would not want her family to know about. But before she left, a close Christian friend said to her, uh, you know, you talk uh, so often about the freedom that you have to do these things. Tell me, are you free not to? Are you free not to do them? And a few years later, it was that very question that brought her to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, many of us realize that the fallen tendency to claim our right to ourselves doesn't end once we profess Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, whether we are tempted to engage in things that are easily identifiable as sinful, like abuse of another, or sex outside of the bonds of marriage, or pornography, or, but also things on up the scale of social acceptability, eh, fudging on taxes a little, or telling white lies, or even doing great things but wanting our own glory and affirmation from others rather than giving the glory to God. This spiritual problem is far less the morality of a particular set, uh, a particular act, than our insistence that we be the ultimate authority over our lives. Paul famously wrote to the Romans, have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Well, as, we have, as we go through the book, uh, the first letter of Paul to the, to the Corinthians, Paul has been dressing this reflexive arrogance all through the letter, sort of taking issue by issue where they have reportedly gone astray because they are not saved by works. 
But we get it right. I mean, we get it. I mean, who, who among us hasn't quietly suppressed our conscience in the knowledge that we'll be forgiven? I have. And so Paul affirms their mantra. All things are lawful for me. We are not given favor with God by conformity to God's law, but since the law has been fulfilled in Christ, our transgressions have been punished on the cross and the law has been removed. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. Helpful for what? Well, for most of us, there's a moment, or maybe it's a season in our lives, where the reality of our salvation comes crashing in on our hearts and the fact that almighty and immutable God would condescend into the muck of our existence and live perfectly and die criminally on our behalf and then rise again to give us life, that that just blows us away. We realize our need for a Savior and just who it is who has saved us. And the very one who stands to judge us for all eternity has taken that punishment on uh, Himself. And we are riveted by God's grace. And we want to please Him. We want to serve Him. We want to love Him. But time marches on. And we get used to the idea of grace. It becomes normal, maybe mundane. If you hung the Mona Lisa on your wall, eventually it's just another picture that needs dusting like all the rest. And it can kind of be that way with Jesus. We want to please Him, serve Him, love Him, but we've got to get the kids out the door to school on time. Deal with the jerk in our bed, I mean, in our office. And they begin to, Jesus can begin to get lost in the shuffle. That's when the old vices creep back in, the old self centered appetites. Eh, saved by grace. All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful, which is to say, there is nothing that you can do to interrupt God's love for you, but there are lots of things that we can do to interrupt our love for God. And sexual sins are especially damaging to our ability to love Him and to reflect His character and His grace to a hurting world. Sexual sins hijack our reason. And our whole bodies lie to us and make us feel strong and affirmed and exhilarated and attractive without reminding us that they leave us feeling weak and secretive and shameful, dirty. Whether it's a real live person who can love you for a minute or a computer screen that's ready to go with just a click, they never, ever deliver what they promise. And Paul says, run! Not just shun, run! Flee! It's not because God won't love you, of course He will, but it's because sin, and especially sexual sin, makes it hard for us to experience 
God's love. And therefore, it's impossible for us to reflect God's character and faithfulness and holiness to a world that needs it so bad, just like we do. I don't care what the woman on the computer screen says. She is never going to die for you. And neither will the charming man or the cute girl. God loves you. God loves you. You were bought with the price of His own blood, rescued by the incomprehensible glory of God taking on flesh saved by the mercy and atoning grace of God. Your loving Creator. So much. So much so that He would place His own Spirit literally within you so that you would be His temple. You, if your faith is in Christ, you are the dwelling place of God. And that's why Paul says that we are to flee sexual immorality, not so that God will love you then, but so you can love Him back. Enjoy Him forever. Which is the very thing that you were created to do. Flee sexual immorality. It is indeed a grace to us. Amen.